Hi, I'm Dr. Judy, and welcome to Supercharged Life, where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment, and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. Today's Supercharged Secret is a call to action for everyone listening, no matter your age or education. You can radically improve your own health and the health of others around you by rolling up your sleeves and becoming a citizen scientist. Now, don't run away because I said the word scientist. Knowledge is power and you can do so much for yourself and others. All that's needed is curiosity, concern, and motivation to make a difference. So if you're ready to transform your life, this episode will arm you with an amazing set of tools to start harnessing the power of science to supercharge your mind and body. Today, I'm so excited about our guest, Max Lugavere. His most recent book, The Genius Life, released in 2020. He's also the author of Genius Foods, Become Smarter, Happier, and More Productive While Protecting Your Brain for Life. He's a best-selling author and your favorite citizen scientist, everybody, Max Lugavere. Yay! Hey, what's up? How's it going? Oh my gosh, it's going great. I'm so happy to have you on, and we actually share a publisher, Harper Wave. Damn, yeah. that's awesome. But I think some of the best work and some of the passions of life really come from personal stories. Mm. And that's actually what started you on this entire track is a very deeply uh, affected personal story about your mom when she first got diagnosed with dementia that really made you feel empowered to say, I'm going to go find all the information that I can get but the good information, going to primary sources and digesting that information and then translating it for the public. And that's what's most amazing about your work is that you find a way to really distill very scientific top level information, but in a way that the average consumer can say that made sense to me and now I can do something about it. Yeah, well, thank you so much. That that really is what I think my place is in all this is as a translator and somebody who um, really more than trying to be an influencer or uh, a health expert, you know, and I'm using air quotes, it's really to be a model for people, like a role model for, for, for people to, to get empowered and to take ownership over their health. Because what I experienced with my mom, and you know this, you know, better than anybody is that most of these conditions, whether we're talking about dementia, whether we're talking about cancer or heart disease, they don't begin overnight. You know, if you have a heart attack, if you develop uh, changes in your gait or in your cognition, the underlying pathology that led to those changes didn't begin the night before you showing up to the doctor's office. Oftentimes, these are year-long or, you know, if not decade-long processes that manifest as, you know, the phenotype that we call Lewy body dementia or mm -hmm. pancreatic cancer. And those two conditions in particular speak to me because my mom was diagnosed with dementia at the age of 58, as you mentioned. And that was a, it was a horrendous thing to have to uh, come to terms with it, that, you know, your, your mother is now grappling with a neurodegenerative condition, a condition that only gets worse over time. It does not get better. And I had harbored as an every man, I mean, as a, as a lay person, misconceptions that I think many people do about dementia. A, that it's an old person's disease. Mm -hmm. My mom was not old. No. Um, that it's genetic. I had no prior family history of any type of genetic, uh, of any type of dementia. In fact, my mom's mother, my maternal grandmother lived to 96 and she was cognitively healthy until the end. And um, my mom's dad was, uh, you know, cognitively normal until the end as well. Normal in, in air quotes. Um, <laughs> but, um, 
but yeah, I mean, so I, so I had harbored all these misconceptions. And then when my mom was finally diagnosed, I, I basically became obsessed with trying to understand why this would have happened to her, what could be done to help her, if anything, what could be done to prevent it from happening to myself and others that I care about. And I became, as you said, a citizen journalist. I, I, I took it upon myself to become an independent investigator to try to understand to the best of my ability, just why, you know, I was just a concerned son at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And I didn't feel that the fact that I didn't go through medical school was a barrier to entry because we live in an amazing time where research is available to us. And I didn't understand everything at first. It was definitely hard at first, but I dedicated every minute of every waking hour that I had to cross-referencing and reading and, and asking questions. And then I realized that I had something that few people in my position had. I had media credentials. And so I started reaching out to scientists and researchers around the globe. And at this point, I mean, on my, uh, like in my favorites on my iPhone, I literally have like one of the top researchers who's, who's become a mentor to me and who's become a collaborator and a friend. And so I've been immersed in this topic now for the better part of a decade. And um, I'm just so grateful that I get to talk about it and, 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 you know, bring people into the fold that wouldn't otherwise think that they should be concerned about this topic. Cause the other thing that I realized is that young people, being being a young person or being a younger person at the time, mm -hmm. um, young people don't care about dementia. Oh no! So, yeah, yeah. Well, you you feel bulletproof at a certain time in your life, and I was actually just talking to one of my producers about this. But right after nine eleven. Um, there was a lot of people who were very frightened, obviously. But at the time, because I was a young, what feels like I was a young kid at that time, I felt like still bulletproof. I went on a flight very next week. And I basically, in my mind was like, oh, well, if something happens to me, whatever, we all have to die sometimes. And maybe I'll take the guy down. Maybe I'll be that person. And it's just so funny that as a young person, that's your mindset, right? I don't think I would feel that way now if 9-11 just happened to me today. Yeah. And I, I think I would feel more, much more cautious about everything. But I think there's just a sense that you're going to live forever mm -hmm. when you're in your 20s, uh, in, your, in your teens, right? And even in your 30s, you still feel very invincible until something like that happens to somebody close to you. So- was your mom ultimately diagnosed with dementia via Lewy bodies? Because there's lots of different types of dementia. Sometimes people conflate Alzheimer's with dementia, but there's different sources for why the dementia occurs. Yeah. So, I mean, what my mom presented with at the, the very first meeting was uh, changes to her cognition and changes to her gait. And so in retrospect, it's pretty clear that what she had was Lewy better dementia, but her symptoms were um, atypical. I mean, yeah. one of my one of my mentors, Richard Isaacson, um, he's one of the world's first uh, Alzheimer's prevention specialists. He leads up the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Weill Cornell in New York City. He says, once you've seen one case of dementia, you've seen one case of dementia. Right. And it's true. I mean, everybody presents differently. Um, but generally, Lewy body dementia, the way that I uh, differentiate it, it, is it feels like having Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease at the same time. Mm -hmm. So generally, if you have Alzheimer's disease um, or the, the the earliest symptoms of Alzheimer's disease will manifest purely cognitively, you know, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a neurocognitive disorder. Parkinson's disease is a movement disorder. So generally, people will present with, you know, rigidity, stiffness, balance, balance problems, um, tremor. Uh, like Michael J. Fox, he's everybody, you know, the person that everybody knows who has Parkinson's disease, but cognitively he's healthy. Now, later on in the, in the disease progression, people with Parkinson's disease may develop a form of dementia and then it becomes Parkinson's disease dementia. But Lewy body dementia, which actually has more in common with Parkinson's disease, 
how you know if you have that i mean one of the one of the ways that you can kind of get a sense is if you have both the onset of the cognitive symptoms and the movement symptoms at once and that's what my mom had and she became by the end of her life very handicapped by yeah. by by the condition We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. As a neuropsychologist, I actually just diagnosed two people with dementia this week hmm. in my practice, and, and one uh, via Lewy bodies and the other one via what we think is an Alzheimer's cause. And it, it's really hard because they're both young. One is 60 and one's 61. Hmm. That is young because usually at that age, you're not thinking about dementia. It really, like you said, it's an old person's disease, yet is it? Is it truly? And also the, the damage maybe starts many, many years before. And in my family, this doesn't run in our family either, but my maternal grandmother, who was very important to me, she helped raise us and was very pivotal in my childhood especially, she had a stroke. And after that, she had vascular dementia. Hmm. And she also showed Parkinson's symptoms. So then she was put on Parkinson's medication because some of it affected her movement. But one of my biggest fears was when I saw her again, if she would remember who I was. And it, it does make you feel a real sense of grief even before you actually see the progression because you know what's coming because yeah. it's a progressive illness. And so how did you manage all of that in the beginning before, of course, you then became empowered and said, I, I'm going to turn this stress and this strife into something actionable and help myself and help others. But what was that moment before that clicked in? And what was that like? Because I know your mother, Kathy, she was so important to you and you loved her so much. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, because my mom was so young and because I had no prior family, I mean, the word dementia, mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember the Adams Family movie back in the day. I mean, I, it was when I was a kid, I saw it and it was the live action version of the movie. And there was an, the, the Uncle Fester had a crush on a woman named Dementia. Oh, <laughs> that was her name. And that was the only thing that dementia meant in my head yeah. was this funny out. This you know, weird pop reference. Yeah, this weird pop reference. That's all it meant to me. So when my mom started to show these early symptoms, me and my and my brothers, the rest of my family, we thought that she was joking. We thought that she was playing, messing with us, seeking attention or what have you. We just mm -hmm. we, we were so ignorant mm -hmm. and we would at times even, you know, I mean, there was one moment that stands out where we we were acting in a patronizing way toward her, she told us that she couldn't remember the year. And we we're like, come on, mom, how can you not remember the year? And this was mm -hmm. at the very beginning. This was when she was in her late fifties. And we were in Miami at the time. And my mom really was struggling to recall the year. And my dad, who was there, my parents had been divorced, but my dad chimed in and she, my mom at that point broke down and started to cry. And that's to mm -hmm. me when I knew that everything changed, when, when I needed to step in, intervene at the very least to get a sense of what was happening, you know, not mm -hmm. even to empower myself with information at that point, but just to get, to try to understand what was going on. It was like that 9-11 moment, you know, it was mm -hmm. like you turn on the news and all of a sudden you hear what, 
the you know right. planes that's what that moment was like for me um and as soon as she received the diagnosis we were at the cleveland clinic in in ohio that was really the line in the sand for me when she got that diagnosis when she was prescribed drugs to treat the, the parkinsonian symptoms and the mm -hmm. dementia symptoms that's when i knew that i had to step in and i was in a very lucky position at the time, very fortunate position. I was in between jobs. Mm -hmm. And so I had the time and basically everything else in my life faded to the background. I, the things that I had been passionate about, I stopped really caring so much about. I really just wanted to know what was going on with my mom, what could be done. Because the, the drugs, I did what any lay person would do when my mom was prescribed those drugs. I went to Dr. Google yeah. and I Googled <laughs> the drugs. And what you find out is that they have no disease modifying treatment. They barely mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. And, um, and lo and behold, you know, over time, my mom, who had been taking since that that diagnosis, these Parkinson's drugs, she was on Cinemet the entire time. Mm -hmm. they, the, they never helped. I mean, I say that with, you know, without uh, cynicism, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, they, I really believe, you know, that they didn't, they weren't doing anything good for her. In fact, I think that they probably were, they were probably accelerating the condition. Yeah. And I think that sometimes medication isn't really the treatment. It, it sometimes just keeps certain symptoms at bay, but then they provoke other symptoms. Yeah. And we really don't know how the multitude of medications truly work in a person's body, interacting with their genes, their biology, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we have the some of the generalized studies of, okay, here are the side effects that have been reported and we hear of, but then when you have this specific combination of yeah. medications in this person with this set of genetic predispositions and environmental factors, how do you really know how that's going to affect that individual? You don't. And I was, um, I've, I've said this numerous times that what I experienced in every doctor's office with my mom was diagnose and adios. And I'll just tell mm -hmm. you, I read it, it clear as day in the medical literature that for patients with Lewy body dementia, Cinemet does not work as effectively as it does in Parkinson's disease. You see in Parkinson's disease when you take Cinemet that there is an immediate reprieve from mm -hmm. symptoms. And then there's a wean, you know, weaning off, the symptoms come back, and you got to take more Cinemet. My mom never had relief from Cinemet. And we know that when you have excess of a neurotransmitter lingering at the synapse, it's a, it act, actually acts as a pro-oxidant. Mm -hmm. So if the drug is not helping, then the patient shouldn't be on the drug. Right. Right. In my view, and right. I'm not a medical doctor, but I don't think that my, you know, but you meet with these doctors and, you know, so few of them are willing to deprescribe. Yeah. So that was just another point of pain and frustration in my life where I'm not about to make that call and take my mom off of a drug because I'm, you know, that's just not my place. But I was reading one thing and I was hearing the other. And then when I would try to bring that up, to the doctors in the doctor's office, they get this condescending tone, like, what could you possibly know? Right. You know, so it was just, it was just really tragic. And that's why I decided to step forward and, and put out my work. And I think it's such a good example of what we can all do, because I, I think I grew up, too, in this culture and this expectation that, you know, you listen to your doctors and you don't question them. They're your doctors. So yeah. you just act in a more deference position. But at the same time, doctors have flaws, too. They're just humans. And mm -hmm. also they have to take care of so many people. And who can take care of yourself and your family members better? Who's going to be the most invested? It's you. And yet we, we still have this trend in our culture that people don't question their doctors or don't go empowered with a set of questions, at least to start a conversation. They just sort of take the the advice and they leave. And, exactly. and that's why the diagnose and audios experience, I think, is so relatable to everyone. I think when you get diagnosed with something so scary and that's the only attention that you get, 
for some people, it makes them maybe shrink away. But for you, it actually made you say, I'm going to do something about it. And your background, actually, when you went to school was in psychology and yeah. in film. Yeah. And you also were always interested in health. You actually considered maybe going and getting your MD at one point. Yeah. So this is all part of your life story anyway. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing <laughs> that I've been able to come full circle and get to do what I do. Um, but yeah, I started as a as a biology major. I loved medicine and health, specifically nutrition when I, when I started college. Mm-hmm. I was very lucky. I genuinely loved it, but I didn't have parents that were pressuring me into it like I think so many people do. And so halfway through college, I realized that I also love creativity and storytelling. And I was I just decided to go and switch to a, a double major in documentary filmmaking and psychology because I, I liked creating content that had the potential to make the world a better place. I've always had like this impact aspect to um, what I do. But yeah, and then I kept one foot in psychology because I was always, you know, I've always been interested in science. And I, I especially really liked abnormal psych. Oh, yes. Um, which I thought was very interesting. Yes. But yeah, um, I've, I've always really been interested in, in nutrition. When I was in high school, beginning in ninth grade, I became very interested in fitness. And for as long as I can remember, I've been dabbling in supplementation and I've been, I've just always been a tinkerer. And so... Then I got a job out of college as an investigative journalist working for a TV network called Current, which I did for six years. And so I became the perfect substrate. When my mom got sick, I really like launched into action because I had amassed all these skills and I had this interest. It was like the perfect storm. And you did it the right way too, because I think sometimes people, they, they go to Dr. Google, but then they start reading Reddits yes. and Yahoo answers. Yeah. And then they say, oh, but this person said X, Y, Z, but you actually went to the primary sources. And I think it's just such a good demonstration that any average person any person who has access to the internet really can go to good sources like PubMed. And more and more, I'm seeing that scholar.google.com, the full articles are actually available. Mm-hmm. I don't have to just look at the abstracts. It's so cool. Yeah. Um, I think it's intimidating for a lot of people because they think, oh, don't I have to be affiliated with a university or maybe I'm a full-time researcher and that's how I get access to a lot of these journals. But increasingly, that's just not the case anymore. You can actually get into the science. But what's special about you is that you actually knew how to interpret the science. I think that sometimes people, they take a look at an abstract or they try to start reading a method section and they freak out. They, they don't know what it all means and right. they don't know how to, and then they just run away from it and then they go back to Reddit's. <laughs> yeah. So do you have any tips before we kind of launch into the substance of your work? How do you start that process as a person who may not have had full on scientific training, but still be able to distill what they need to from good research? Such a good question. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, like we've lost so many um, forms of literacy, I think, in the modern world because we live in a world now that favors specialization. So, Mm -hmm. you know, culinary literacy, nobody knows how to cook anymore because we have food delivery apps, financial literacy. I mean, so many millennials are now struggling with money because we've just like lost Mm -hmm. an ability to know how to manage our finances. Mm -hmm. Science literacy is another one of those things that I think we've lost and we need to get back. We need to understand how to interpret science because science is not owned by academia. It's a method of asking questions and finding answers. And the same way that not everybody is going to get into a kitchen and be able to become Wolfgang Puck or whatever, (laughs) not everybody is going to be able to go to scientific literature and become a science expert. I'm not saying that what I've done can be done by everybody, but with dedication and um, and passion and knowing how to ask questions, I think you really can, you know, go pretty far in terms of becoming, you know, close to an expert in a given topic if you really dedicate yourself to it. So, mm-hmm. you know, going to PubMed and not going to, as you mentioned, like these secondhand 
mm-hmm. sites like Reddit or even or even media sites. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing the difference between an observational study, a review, and a trial, um, looking at studies that are that are more recent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think looking at the year in which a study is published and always cross-referencing, like a tip that I can offer that I did when I didn't understand something, I would just actually go to other studies mm-hmm. and see how different scientists would refer to the same uh, concept. Because mm-hmm. what I figured was that, you know, maybe the reason why I wasn't understanding something at the time was because of just the way that it was written. So if I could find it just written in another way, it would basically be like shining light from a different angle on the same concept. Mm -hmm. And then I'd be able to see what it actually is. Um, And so I did that enough times and I cross-referenced and and, um, I began reading intros. Intros are written in English, you know, read the introductions, read the discussions, read Mm -hmm. the conclusions. Interpreting data is a little bit harder. The methods, you know, we can spend a whole hour talking about the (laughs) methods. Um, And, you know, I'm always learning. Like it's a skill that you sharpen over time and and nobody is perfect when it comes to reading studies. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a, it's a skill. One of the things that I did was I created a document that's um, like a field guide to becoming a citizen citizen journalist. And I actually offer it to people who pre-order um, my book, The Genius Life. If you go to GeniusLifeBook.com and you pre-order, there's actually a, there's like a, a free PDF ebook that I offer for people that kind of goes into greater detail. That's wonderful. Yeah. And again, a skill that we can all sharpen. I love your tips so far because again, the cross-referencing, just understanding how other people are talking about it, going to the original source and starting with the intro and conclusion. Like you said, that's written in plain English. There's usually actions. There's usually calls to what they're going to do next. And that's really helpful to kind of start there. And then if you decide you want to get deeper into the methods, there's ways to do that too with more experience and maybe some even online training. I see some classes that you can just take, you know, 10 hour class on how to understand basic methods and research. And so that's really great too. But I love your tip and I'm glad that people can get a free resource from your website. And I did read your book, The Genius Life, your second book. It's amazing, Max. I love it so much because it's all about actually having a lifestyle that promotes brain health and overall health, mental health. I mean, it's an all-encompassing passage. And I think that that is really important for people to know, that it's not really just about one piece, right? I mean, we're whole human beings, so we got to really, in many ways, overhaul just how we live our lives, as opposed to seeing something as a diet. And I know that you never were a proponent of this. In your first book, you never said, this is a diet. It's a lifestyle. Incorporate these foods and they're going to help. And and I want to start asking you some specific questions about that, but I just want to commend you on how wonderful your second book was. I love The Genius Life and I love the practical tips that you offer. And I can see the blood, sweat, and tears that went into understanding the research, but also then describing it in a way that's pragmatic that's a really special skill set that you have that I don't think the average person can do. And, and that's why it's so good that you are the teacher because sometimes people, it's just too overwhelming for them to go to that yeah. original source, but they can read your book and they can say, oh, okay, I understood that and I know what to do with it. And that's just so important for everybody to know that there are things you can do to prevent illness. That's really the best medicine, right? Is prevention. Yeah. By the time an illness already manifests, there's only so much we can all do. Still things that you can improve, but not quite the same way as when you're starting from a place of just looking ahead into your future and saying, here are the things that I can do to set myself up. Well said. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are things that I cover in the book like AMPK and mTOR, which I mean, Mm -hmm. your average person has never heard of these terms, but... Um, but I want to understand them. And so, mm-hmm. you know, by 
and I'm just a lay person at the end yeah. of the day. I want to understand these topics. I think that they're so cool and so interesting. And so what I've, you know, what I relentlessly try to do is to understand them better and better and better. And so when I'm writing a book like, you know, my new book, The Genius Life, I can't wait to share my understanding with the audience and, and empower them with this information because, you know, there's, there is so much that we can do. And you're right. Nutrition is just one part of the story. Um, so yeah, I go into things like, you know, circadian biology, which is yes. this rapidly evolving field of, of research that I think is so interesting, which yes. discusses how light can either be a form of medicine or it could actually be, it could actually act as a pro-aging agent yes. or a potential carcinogen. I mean, light as a carcinogen, like yeah. this is a, you know, again, an evolving science, but there is a suggestion in the literature that bright artificial light later on in the evening when we should be winding down um, can actually cause changes, biochemical changes in our body that can cause, that can lead to potentially tumor formation or accelerate yes. aging. And this is no joke. I mean, so I'll, I'll go into that because that's, I know that sounds like a very bold claim, but mm -hmm. when the sun sets, our brains begin to produce a hormone called melatonin. Mm -hmm. And people know about melatonin. You can buy it as a supplement. Right. It's a sleep hormone, right? It helps us wind down at night. Bright light causes a, a dramatic suppression of the release of this hormone. And melatonin is not just a hormone that helps us get to bed. It's an antioxidant. It's anti-inflammatory. It's involved in DNA repair. And it's involved in a process called autophagy, which is sort of like the KonMari method that biology uses to, to clean, our, clean up, you know, yep. worn out uh, Tidy proteins. up your cells. Yeah, tidies, tidies <laughs> up, yeah. There's a joke in the book that I make. It's like, uh, you know, do these old worn out mitochondria spark joy? No, well then sayonara. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that, yeah. you know, because I think like that's, that helps people to kind of um, remember this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so DNA damage, DNA damage is at the root cause of aging. It's yeah. at the root cause of, you know, you damage the DNA of a cell that controls how it replicates and how it divides. It becomes a tumor, right? Mm-hmm. So by exposing our eyes to super bright light later on in the evening, that suppresses melatonin, which is involved in all those amazing processes, right? Improving the cleanup of our cells, re repairing damaged DNA. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately today you can go into a, a drugstore or supermarket or even have a big enough TV and, you know, all of a sudden like a daylight shot comes on and mm -hmm. the light emitted from, from our screens can suppress melatonin, causing it to basically be you know, like when you turn off the valve on like a, on a hose. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think that that's at the root cause of a lot of problems that we're seeing in society. And it's one of the reasons that's been proposed why you see night shift workers who make up 20% of the global workforce seem to have a higher uh, incidence of certain cancers. Right. Again, not a settled science, but very interesting. And if we can help ourselves, if we can control the amount of light that we allow to enter our eyes in the evening, I think we would all be better off. Yeah. And I know that you are a proponent of uh, blue light blocking glasses that you might be able to wear. There's other tips that you give in the book. Like there's sometimes a, a warming tone that yeah. you can set your iPhones to or your computer to do that, you know, at different hours of the day. It, it, there's also sort of how much exposure you're giving yourself to light in the morning that you talk about. That's very important for resetting your circadian rhythms. And something else that I thought was so interesting, this whole feels like a fad, but now we know there's science behind it, intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. Now, 
I've been doing this all my life without knowing that that's what it was. And then it was so funny when all of this research started coming out that that actually is beneficial for us. And so it's a little bit after 10 a.m. in the morning. I haven't eaten anything, have you? No. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's not time yet. It's not yeah, time yet. Yeah. Um, but, but explain why the intermittent fasting is good for us and how it helps to promote brain and overall health. I first became aware of intermittent fasting thanks to a researcher at the NIH um, named Mark Matson, who found in animals that fasting boosts uh, a compound of the brain called BDNF, or brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is sort of like the brain's miracle grow protein. Yeah, I love that you say that. Yeah, miracle grow. It's a good grow. visual. There was a reference in the literature that I found where you can literally sprinkle BDNF on neurons in a Petri dish and they sprout dendrites, which are like the physical correlates of memory. So mm -hmm. it's an amazing fertilizing compound that keeps your brain youthful and you know, it, it encourages the characteristic known as neuroplasticity, which we all know is a good thing as we mm -hmm. age, the brain's ability to change um, is maintained with neuroplasticity. Um, so intermittent fasting, there's now a number of trials coming out and admittedly, most of them are performed in men. Um, you know, so it's, it's a little trickier to extrapolate to women. And the reason for this is very interesting. Women have an, we, I talk a lot about circadian rhythms in mm -hmm. the book. Women have another rhythm. Obviously they have their monthly rhythm. And so mm -hmm. that can kind of complicate things mm. in clinical trials. So generally, when you see studies with intermittent fasting, even diet studies, a lot of the research that comes out in clinical trials usually is performed in men mm -hmm. um, or postmenopausal women who don't have that, that cycle, you know, that mm -hmm. monthly cycle. So anyway, I digress. But yeah, intermittent fasting is, um, I think, really effective for many reasons. For one, it helps to control food consumption. So today, your average person is eating for 16 hours straight mm -hmm. around the clock. The minute they wake up to the minute they go to bed, they're digesting and metabolizing food. We're better at metabolizing food earlier in the day as opposed to later at night because we're diurnal creatures. So we're meant to be most active during the day. That's when you're going to be at your most insulin sensitive. Right. And research is now starting to show that or suggest that Irrespective of weight loss, so irrespective of calories, just by constraining your eating window to a set number of hours, eight hours, eight, anywhere between eight to 10 to maybe even 12 hours, depending on, you know, if you're a, if you're a female, I would say maybe start with a, a wider um, eating window. Mm -hmm. If you're male, you could probably contend with uh, an eight hour window. That irrespective of the calorie control aspect of intermittent fasting, that people seem to show improvements in blood pressure, mm -hmm. in blood uh, sugar, and you know, other markers of metabolic health. So um, I think I think that it's a great thing. And there are a few reasons why intermittent fasting may work. I mean, for one, I'll just give you an example. So today I woke up kind of artificially. I woke up with an alarm clock. Mm -hmm. So I could have probably slept another hour or two, but instead I woke up early to get here to do this interview with you, which I was happy <laughs> to do because it's a lovely interview, right? Um <laughs> But when you wake up artificially with an alarm clock, there's a good chance that that, mel that hormone melatonin has not properly subsided. So it might still be elevated for people who wake up with an alarm clock. Now, as I mentioned, melatonin is a great hormone. But one of the consequences of melatonin uh, is that it reduces our sensitivity temporarily to insulin because it's a hormone that's meant to wind us down. And you don't really need to be at your most energetic when you're winding down to go to sleep. So if melatonin is still elevated in the morning and you eat breakfast in that window, you're not, your body's not going to be as efficient at, at partitioning the, the fuels that you're consuming in your breakfast. So the best thing to do for people that wake up artificially with an alarm clock, which is, by the way, like the vast majority of us today, is to wait about an hour or two after you wake up to, to take your first bite 
um, to eat breakfast, just so that your body is really primed to metabolize energy so that that melatonin has been um, allowed to come down. Yeah, generally, I think it's great to the, the advice that I give people is to not eat for an hour or two after you wake up, generally mm -hmm. speaking. Um, and then to not eat for two to three to maybe even four hours before bed. I think the research is starting to kind of paint this picture that eating an earlier dinner seems to be better uh, because, again, we're less insulin sensitive, sensitive as the day goes on. And insulin, for people who don't know, insulin is the hormone that basically shuttles uh, – well – it affects how you metabolize what you're eating and it affects um, fat storage and things like that. So you really want to be insulin sensitive when you're consuming your food. Insulin resistance, which is the inverse of insulin sensitivity, is sort of the hallmark of type 2 diabetes. So we don't want to become insulin resistant. So yeah, then I think it's really smart to not eat for two to three hours before you go to sleep. Um, and for that, I think it's you know a good uh, way to kind of conceptualize this is just to consider the kitchen in your body having closed for the night. Like you go into mm -hmm. a restaurant after hours, the kitchen's closed. Mm -hmm. The same thing kind of happens in your body. Now you're going to be able to digest and metabolize food no matter what time of day that you eat it. But what's optimal? Optimal is probably not to consume food right before you go to sleep. It's probably more optimal to, you know, to start winding down your food consumption for the day at 7 or 8 p.m. So that's what I do. I mean, personally, I try to eat dinners as early as I can. I try to eat dinner at around 6.30 p.m. every night. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it doesn't happen, you know. Being socially engaged is, a, is definitely a part of living the genius life. Sometimes right. we get called to dinners that are on the late side. Yes. Don't stress about it. Right. But generally, like I think in the in the – um, in terms of what you do most frequently, I think it's probably better to to just eat earlier dinners. Yeah, I've adopted definitely some of the concepts of the genius life because I love early bird dinners. And I have been trying to sway some of my friends to come to dinners with me at 530 yeah. or 6. I love those dinner times. Uh, but yeah, like you said, sometimes you get a late call and and you go, mm -hmm. right? Because it's just a couple days. And, yeah. and sometimes I get a call to go to a, a breakfast meeting. I, then I'll eat breakfast that day. Same. So we don't have to necessarily stress so much about it. But, but I certainly feel like there's an act actual supercharging of your cognitive skills when I do the intermittent fasting. You know, um, I, I feel more clear when I don't have a big breakfast. Yeah. Well, it wouldn't make sense from an evolutionary standpoint to get uh, more dull in terms of your cognition once <laughs> food ceased to be around, right? Once food ran out, the food supply ran out for a hunter-gatherer, you would need to like be energized. You would need to mm -hmm. be sharp so that, and creative so that you could figure out where to find your next meal. So I think from an evolutionary standpoint, it makes a lot of sense that you would feel, uh, you know, sharp. And in fact, there was a study uh, published. I forget the exact, I'm paraphrasing the title of the study, but it was always gamble while hungry. People tend to make more advantageous decisions uh -huh. when they're hungry because your body is like, I need food. I can't afford to be stupid right now. I need to be yes. at my most primed. So that generally what I'll do is if I have an important meeting or whatever mm -hmm. um, and I can help it, I'll try to actually push, I'll try to have that meeting in the morning and I won't eat before that meeting. And then I'll eat afterwards. I'll reward myself. Yeah. I do the same thing. So I, I also do a lot of forensic expert witness work and I get called to depositions and court testimonies, mm. which are very stressful situations. You have to be so on top of it. I, I don't eat before that because I just, you know, I, I actually don't trust myself, my sluggish self that is spending a lot of time digesting my food to actually remember everything I need to remember in those moments and be able to recall it and be able to talk about it with the type of sophistication that I probably need to, to make sure that everybody understands my points. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. yeah. And also you bring up a good point that after a meal, you know, especially with the way that most people eat today, 
diets that are comprised primarily of ultra processed foods. Yes. People tend to experience like post meal fatigue. I think yes. a lot. I did when I used to base my diet around grain products and things like Which that. Which was what we were taught, the yeah. pyramid. The food pyramid, yes. Yeah. Yes. And I know that you've mentioned before that 60% of the calories that we consume coming only from three sources, which is processed wheat, corn, and rice. Almost all of the products are processed, pulverized. There's so much that's done to them. And then we put that in our bodies and we expect that we're going to deal with them well. But that is not our evolution. That is not our biology and what we're meant to do. One of the things that I talk about in The Genius Life, you know, I'm not, uh, I've become less dogmatic which I think is a you know a good thing. I'm always willing to change my mm-hmm. you know my 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 assumptions and 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 beliefs about food when presented with better data. And you know I think it should be less of a concern for people about like car- I, there's like these carb and fat wars that mm-hmm. happen now, like low carb diet, low fat diet. You know, like right. you get these diet factions on the internet. But to me, I think the most important thing is really to just kind of be able to identify and avoid ultra processed foods because yes. I think that the, I think that they're inherently fattening. Energy balance at the end of the day is going to dictate whether or not you put fat on your waistline or you reduce are able to, you know, to drop fat, but mm-hmm. ultra processed foods, you know, they're so quickly consumed, they're so rapidly absorbed, they're dehydrated so that they can mm-hmm. be shelf stable, so they're just not satiating. They often induce hunger down the road. Yeah. Um it's called biphasic hunger, a biphasic hunger pattern, and they're primarily carbs and fat. You know, they're primarily hyper-refined carbs. They spike your blood sugar. They um, will leave you hungry later on. And so I really think that for most people, most people are going to get the the greatest bang for their buck by simply avoiding packaged processed foods. So foods with extensive ingredients lists, foods that are shelf stable, you know where to find them in the supermarket. They're always in the aisles. Most supermarkets, I think think this is something that few people realize that supermarkets tend to be designed the same way. Mm -hmm. No matter where you are in the world, the fresh food is is around the perimeter of the supermarket and the processed foods are in the aisles of the supermarkets. And so if you can just generally avoid the ultra processed foods, it's going to do wonders for your, for your waistline. This was actually shown in a study funded by the national institutes of health that came out, um, in between my first book and this book, the genius life that I was, it was so great because I was able to incorporate it into my recommendations that people who eat primarily ultra processed foods, their hunger and reward me- mechanisms get short-circuited mm-hmm. and they end up over-consuming calories by about 500 calories a day, which is you do that every single day and that's a pound of fat gain a Oh week. my gosh, yeah. Um, and for the same to the same degree of satiety, people who consume primarily whole foods, so foods that you buy around the perimeter of the supermarket, eggs, dark leafy greens, cruciferous vegetables, alliums like you know onions, garlic, mm-hmm. um, grass-fed beef, fatty fish, nuts, end up eating to the same degree of satiety, end up coming in at a calorie deficit. So it's like right. effortless weight loss right, right. there. It's awesome. I mean, I know you talk a lot about these nutrient-dense foods, and those are some of the lists of the foods that are the genius foods that you talked about in your yeah. first book. And also, chocolate is one of the genius foods. So that's okay, guys. Yeah. You can have some dark chocolate. Yes. Everybody relax. In fact, people who have dark chocolate have a lot of improved health indices overall, which is really interesting. Awesome. So it's really great. So as a way to delve deeper into your work, I want to walk through the day in a genius life. And so so we kind of started a little bit talking about it, like if you can avoid the alarm clocks, that's great. I love that. I love being able to just wake up 
whenever your body wants to wake up. If that's possible, it's great. I also had to use an alarm clock this morning. And I always feel like I'm robbed a little bit when I have to do that. Yeah, same. <laughs> it's a privilege afforded to the few. And, you know, I'm, I yeah. often have to wake up with an alarm. That's just the nature of life living in the yes. 21st century. But I think when you when you recognize kind of what that does to your physiology, mm-hmm. um, we can kind of fight back and we can, um, you know, adapt our environments mm-hmm. to support that that we need to do during the day. So that's a concept that I talk about in the genius life too, that I'm super excited about this notion of cross adaptation. You can't always change your environment, but you can make yourself more resilient to it. And that is what living the genius life is all about is like having these like little insights in the back of your head so that you can then act on them Mm -hmm. and say, well, I got to wake up every day to an alarm clock. That's just life. There's nothing bad about that. There's nothing inherently bad about it. Maybe I get to go to a job that I love, or maybe I get to go to a job that I don't necessarily love, but it pays me a lot or it pays me something so that I can feed my family. So that, we, there are things that we have to do today to, to, to get by all of us too. And by just kind of having that insight, if I wake up, you know, if I'm waking up early today with an alarm clock, I'm going to push my first meal to maybe after I get bright light in through my eyes, which mm-hmm. basically pumps the brakes on that melatonin. Right. And it's going to make my body more able to efficiently metabolize the food that I'm about to give it. Right. And actually you go through in your book kind of almost like an, a little chart of optimized sunlight exposure times and based on light skin versus darker skin because everybody's exposure is going to be different. Yeah. For someone, 20 minutes is a lot if you have very light skin, you know, yeah. then maybe it's more five minutes for that person. And yeah. so I think it was really great that you had that breakdown. So definitely get that sunlight early on and it doesn't even have to take that long. So no. people think, what do you mean? Like, I don't have time to go and sit around for an hour. Well, I have just incorporated that into my morning routine of having coffee. I just go sit on the patio Love and that. that's when I get my sunlight. And as a hack to trying to wake up less with an alarm clock, I just go to bed earlier because I know that my body generally likes to sleep about six to seven hours. And so if I time that correctly, I can trust myself to wake up in a certain window that would still be okay. But yep. when I have a really early call, I can't do that. But you know, if my, my first thing in the morning is at nine, then I can generally know if I go to bed by 10 30 or 11 I'm gonna be up in plenty of time yeah and that's same. always a, a nice treat um let's talk a little bit about then when you do get around to eating which is a couple of hours after do you work out usually in the morning yeah I love to work out first thing in the morning generally whenever you can work out that's the best time to work out um so yeah. you know I'll, I'll say that but I love to work out fasted um yes. first thing in the morning I just tend to I feel that I'm very energetic because I'm not dealing with any post-meal fatigue, as you Mm -hmm. mentioned. I also, you know, we have this uh, hormonal and this milieu in the body and also with involving neurotransmitters in the brain that really are oriented to help us find food Mm -hmm. because we're in that fasted state. So I tend to feel very strong first thing in the morning um, and, and energetic. And I like to work out sometimes in the afternoon as well, but you know, in the afternoon you're dealing with mm-hmm. that, that kind of post meal fatigue. And so yeah, there's also, um, there's also evidence that working out fasted, uh, is going to help you burn more fat. Now it's not going to necessarily help with weight loss, um, because, you know, at the end of the day, calorie, you know, you're not going to burn more calories necessarily with a fasted morning workout, but the, you do tend to, this is a little technical, um, but you t- tend to oxidize more fat. You tend to burn more fat in your in the mitochondria mm-hmm. when you work out fasted, which I think is which I think is going to be beneficial for metabolic health, which is something that very few people actually have 
um, yeah. in this country. Very few people are in a state of, of optimal metabolic health. And so I think working out in a fasted state is going to help you actually become a more efficient fat burner mm -hmm. um, over the over the long term, which is valuable. Yeah, definitely. And exercise is so good for so many things. It's good for brain health, heart health. It's good for mental health. And in your book, you actually talk about the different types of exercise. And we all know that aerobic exercise, that's been sort of harped in. We all know that that's good for heart health and mental health and brain health. But I think one thing that you talk about and highlight is that sometimes we forget about the strength training and actually it has so many benefits yeah. also. So you got to work that into. You got to. In fact, I rarely will do cardio because I try to generally be just active all day. Mm -hmm. If you work a desk job, you know, I think there's obviously benefit to, to getting on the treadmill or doing the elliptical every once in a while. But, and it depends on your training goals. Some people love cardio and that's totally fine. But I really think that uh, resistance training, especially in the medical literature where the brain is concerned, concerned is a, is a, completely unsung hero. Yes. Um, I think it's major. I think having more muscle on your body as you age is just crucially important. It helps reduce inflammation. It's the best way to boost insulin sensitivity, actually, mm -hmm. which is a marker of metabolic health. And in my book, I talk about how Alzheimer's disease is now being referred to as type 3 diabetes. Right. Because it, re it, it, it really involves impaired insulin signaling in the brain and glucose tolerance in the brain. The best thing that you could do to boost insulin sensitivity in your body, so boost the way that you're body metabolizes and, and handles and partitions energy is with resistance training. So whether you're young or old, male or female, I think everybody should should be working resistance training into their into their workout routines, everybody. And sometimes I go to the gym and I see people working with really light weights. You want to boost the intensity. You really mm -hmm. want to like work out at the near the top of your uh, of your intensity level. Yeah. You know, you you might not necessarily sweat with every workout, uh, but you really want to make sure that you're pushing your strength to its max because that's the way that you grow stronger. Right. And I think that it's great because in your book, you actually go through a few tips yeah. based on wherever you are in your fitness level and your health. Everybody can do some resistance training. And I also love that you say no movement is wasted. So take the stairs, walk an extra lap. Exactly. All of that adds up. It doesn't matter if it's not all done in a certain period of time. And so that's really great. And so much of your book is about reducing inflammation overall, because we know that chronic stress is what kills. The acute stress is fine. Our bodies love that. Yes. I mean, exercise is acute stress. Yeah. Coffee, which I love, is acute stress in many ways. But sometimes the foods that we eat have a certain type of inflammatory process, right? That, that they can in, ignite inflammation. And you talk about this as almost starting a forest fire yeah. in your body. And so, so when you do finally move on to foods and making good food choices, and I'm such a advocate of food as medicine, you talk a lot. I've seen some of your interviews about a big fatty salad, yeah. which sounds actually really good. Yeah. Um, and it's fun. It's fun to think about. I mean, like the picture I get is I, I oftentimes just go to my nearest grocery store and I just start picking stuff up from the salad bar and you just kind of throw some stuff together. It's, it's actually best. really easy to do. So tell us a little bit about what an ideal big fatty salad for you would consist of. Yeah. So this is one of the hallmark, you know, um, things that I advocate for. It's, uh, it's, it's, and this is actually not rocket science It's every day. Try to eat a big salad, mm -hmm. um, fill it with dark leafy greens, kale, spinach, arugula, um, red onions are amazing. Um, cruciferous ve vegetables, beets. I mean, just, you know, there are no rules. That's a beautiful thing about creating a salad. And always, always throw in the protein. Protein is the most satiating macronutrient. Mm -hmm. um, it's more satiating than carbs or fat. So it's going to fill you up, which is really important. Um, throw in an egg or wild salmon or grass-fed beef. Those are some of my favorites. And I call it a fatty salad because some of the most valuable nutrients um, in dark leafy greens or in produce in general 
are compounds called carotenoids. Mm -hmm. And carotenoids I've become a big fan of just because they, well, they've been well known to actually boost eye health for a long time. So compounds like lutein and zeaxanthin, if you ever buy like a an eye multivitamin or, you know, like an eye um, supplement, Mm-hmm. You'll always notice that they contain lutein and zeaxanthin because these compounds accumulate in in the eye, which is actually the eye is a is an extension of your neural tissue, and they can help ward off age related macular degeneration um, with a dose of about six milligrams combined lutein and zeaxanthin every day. Uh, but they also have been shown very recently to accumulate also in the brain, mm-hmm. and um, people who have higher levels of lutein and zeaxanthin, they age better in terms of their cognitive function. And there have also been a number of of clinical trials um, performed in people across the age spectrum. Uh, but but what I think is most interesting is that in, you know, some of the studies involve young people that are in college. So people who are young and healthy are already thought to be at the peak of their cognitive prowess. And what they find is that when giving these college students supplemental lutein and zeaxanthin, even in that that young and optimized healthy you know group, they're able to see a twenty percent boost in their visual processing speed, which is remarkable. Huge, huge. Yeah. Um, so lutein and zeaxanthin, incredible for brain health, incredible for eye health, uh, and they're only absorbed through your digestive tract. They only become bioavailable to you when consumed in the presence of fat. So if you're eating a bowl of dark leafy greens with a fat-free dressing. All of those, you know, the the absorption of those compounds, those those very valuable compounds is negligible. You just, you know, poop them out. Um, And so you always want to include a healthy fat source. So I mentioned, you know, you can throw an egg in, you can throw in some sunflower seeds, which are a great addition. I'm a huge fan of extra virgin olive oil. So I'm putting a tablespoon or two on my my dark leafy greens. Um, So you want that cell to have fat in it. You want it to have dark leafy greens, fresh, you know, produce. And and a decent fat source. Yeah, and I said I know that you've said that that's the only fruit juice that you drink. Really. Yeah, it's extra yeah. virgin olive oil. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. the only fruit juice that I that I consume is extra virgin olive oil. But you do eat some fruits, and you eat blueberries, for example. You eat berries because those berries. are good for your brain. Yes, and so you can still have some fruit, obviously within moderation. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I think the fruit thing gets a little bit confusing. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm a I love fruit. I'm mm-hmm. you know I try to eat seasonally, uh, but if you put a a, a nice crispy fresh Honeycrisp apple in front of me. I'm going to go to town. I love Honeycrisp yeah. apples. You yeah. know, I'm a big fruit uh, consumer. You want to make sure that if you're eating fruit, it's whole fruit. Yes. And if you do have, you know, some kind of metabolic dysfunction, if you have type 2 diabetes, if you're even pre-diabetic, some of these higher sugar fruits that I think people think you can just eat unlimited amounts of, I don't think it's a good idea to consume unlimited amounts of, you yeah. know, like tropical fruit, like oh, yeah. like pineapple Mangoes. or melon or mango. <laughs> or, yeah. And, and especially if they're dried yes. um, and absolutely not if they're fruit juice. But even a banana, if you're sitting at a desk all day and you're, you've got visceral fat and you're, you know, eating banana after banana, that's not a good, I don't think that that's a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, of course, the you know whole fruit is not at the at the cause of these problems that we're seeing, you know, the obesity crisis and what have you. But um, I do think that there is a hierarchy of fruit consumption, and and I think berries are amazing. Blueberries, strawberries, raspberries, any kind of berry. Avocados are a wonderful low sugar fruit. Even cacao is a fruit. That doesn't mean that dark yeah. chocolate is a you know it's fruit, <laughs> but it's a, but it's you know it's a form of fruit. Yeah, um, it's true. And so yeah, so I'm I'm a big fan of low sugar fruits generally, and if you're 
active and if you're metabolically healthy, then yeah, have at the apples and the bananas and what have you. Yeah. It's not one size fits all. Right. And, and everybody's going to find what works for them. And, you know, one of the reasons why, as we talked about, why you've been motivated to to understand more about all of this is because you had a family member, your mom, who was diagnosed with dementia. And I don't think that there is a coincidence that dementia, well, first of all, the incidence of dementia does appear to be increasing about 116% higher between 1990 to 2016 than previous decades. But we tend to see in the research that it's mostly the increase is mostly coming from low and middle income households. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, I think, in general, low income and middle income households, they, they feel like they have less access maybe to some of these healthy foods. And, and some of it's true. It's just in low income households, they have more convenience stores and supermarkets. But I think that generally has been dispelled that you can't somehow still with your small budget, still try to eat more healthily and, and make some of these practical changes. And so I think people are feeling more empowered about that. But the second piece of it, I think, is related to the fact that a lot of low and middle income households are living in urban areas. And you had an interesting theory about this in your book, about the exposure to certain toxins that are more prevalent in these urban areas. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the book, I talk about different types of environmental toxins. Um, but primarily, I think the one type of toxin that is most related to Alzheimer's disease is um, a certain type of air pollution uh, called fine particulate matter. So these are particles that are airborne that um, measure about 2.5 micrometers or smaller. So they're, they're way smaller than even the width of a human hair. You can't see them. Um, but we breathe them in and they're able to enter circulation. They're able to pierce the blood-brain barrier and actually they can cause changes in the brain that actually look a lot like what you would see in advanced Alzheimer's disease. And they've shown this in parts of the world that are very polluted, like Mexico City. They see Alzheimer's-like pathology in, in children, basically, that are exposed to high levels of this fine particulate, fine particulate matter. Now, how air pollution uh, may be involved in the etiology of Alzheimer's disease, it's, a, it's an evolving science like, like any other. But uh, research estimates posit that 20% of Alzheimer's cases might be owed to exposure to high levels of air pollution. Um, women who live in parts of the country, parts of the U.S., was, was a study done over 48 states, found that um, those who were exposed to high levels of air pollution had a 90% higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Now, as you mentioned, there's a lot of confounding variables. They live in, you know, they tend to be low-income Mm -hmm. um, areas where, you know, access to food is a question, education is a question, you know, all these, there are all these questions really. Mm -hmm. Um, but we do know that find that these particles, which are, which are common, which are produced in the, in the burning of fuels, gasoline emitted by our cars and other industrial processes are able to enter circulation and they're found in the brain. Mm -hmm. Particles like magnetite, which is made of iron. Right. Um, so you really want to be kind of cognizant of your, your, you know, environmental surroundings, um, the air that you that you breathe, whether or not you have a genetic um, increased risk for developing Alzheimer's disease might make you um, even more vulnerable. So right. just to become aware of this stuff and then to take steps in your life to kind of counter those processes. And ultimately what I what I say in the book is that the consequences of, of any exposure really are going to ultimately depend on how robust and resilient you are as an mm -hmm. organism. And so to make sure that you're eating a healthy diet, that you're exercising, that you're detoxing properly. Um, and I use detoxing uh, not to imply, you know, that you ought to be going out spending money on detox teas and supplements, but, 
you know, exercising regularly, making sure that your digestion is on point, you know, that you're going to the bathroom regularly, Mm -hmm. um, that you're sweating regularly. This Mm -hmm. is super, super, super important stuff that you're supplementing well if, um, if need be, you know, right. if you're making sure that your vitamin D levels are topped off, making sure that you're, you know, consuming adequate uh, omega-3 fatty acids mm-hmm. and then things like that. Um, these are all ways that you can counter the, the modern environment. So I grew right. up, you know, and I grew up in New York City. Yeah, My mom spent her whole life in New York City, which, yes. you know, it's a it's a big city. The air is not super, super clean. Right. I'll never know if that contributed to what my mom had developed, but... You know, I mean, certainly I was, you know, I was, I've been exposed um, like As many well. people. Yeah. And like most of us have. And and so a day in the genius life might mean stepping away a little bit from that environment, spending some time outdoors, which is so good for brain health, physical health, mental health. You even talk about auditory stimuli, that that can also be a toxin that you we really forget about. Book. Oh my God. Yes. I, I, I delved, <laughs> I, I delve deep. I do it. But, you know, I really am a fan of your work. And um, I thought that that was also so helpful just to know sometimes this is why maybe mindfulness practice is good. Mm. Meditation is good. But just some time where you get a break from all of that noise, which is in many ways like a toxin to our brain. It is. Yeah. I mean, the the dose makes the poison. But today we're just inundated with toxic exposures, you know, whether it's air pollution or noise pollution or light pollution. It's just overwhelming to our to our systems. I mean, our bodies are capable. They can defend themselves, but they can only contend with so much. So you know, optimizing your diet, making sure that you're detoxing regularly, um, that you're sweating regularly, that you're going to the bathroom regularly. I mean, this is actually because I'm not a clinician. Mm -hmm. So when I wrote my first book, Genius Foods, I, you know, I wrote it from the standpoint of my personal experience with my mom, my personal experience with my own health and, um, you know, conversing with experts all around the world and diving into the medical literature. But what I hadn't had is the, the feedback, the immediate feedback that I think a clinician often gets. So mm-hmm. when Genius Foods came out, it, you know, I'm very grateful it became a hit. It's published all over the world. I can't tell you how many thousands of messages I've gotten from people who are like, once I started eating in accordance with your diet, I started going to the bathroom every day. So I was like, well, how yes. often were you going to the bathroom before? And they were, you know, and, and people would say, once every three days. You Crazy. Know? Yeah. And yeah. I'd be like, wow, that's. That's I mean, terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So, everybody needs a good BM in the morning. <laughs> exactly. Everybody. Everybody. Everybody does. Um, you, I mean, like, it's so cool. And I think this is, you know, I mean, I could, I, I like talking about poop because I think it's so interesting. Oh, yeah. Poop is important to talk about. I don't know why people have such a stigma against it. Yeah. Yeah. You literally excrete environmental toxins oh. through the gut. It's catharsis. Yeah, it's catharsis. <laughs> you feel good it, about it. It cleans you out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, um. yeah, it's super important. So, yes. I mean, making sure that you're staying hydrated. And pooping is not just about pooping well. It's not just about eating more fiber. It's about staying hydrated. You got to move. You got to like exercise and and engage in physical activity. Stress is a major reason why people I think get constipated. Yes. I mean, you know, I'll just tell you my bathroom habits get all messed up when I'm traveling and I'm sitting yes. in airplanes all day and I'm oh. you know running from place to place. It's yes. like it's it wreaks havoc on your digestive health. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes these sometimes it's unavoidable. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I think you want to make sure that you can like build time into your day to de-stress and to yes. you know take care of that. Because again, detox we detox we detox through the gut. 
And right. it's just so important. Yeah. And you have to build that relaxing time into your morning routine. At least I do, because if I'm not relaxed, I can't go to the bathroom. So yeah. I have to have an hour where I'm just sipping coffee, looking at the sun, uh, doing my emails, doing light work so that I finally can just take care of that and then move on with the rest of my day. Exactly. So, Don't be grossed out, people. <laughs> yeah. It's not gross. Yeah. It's awesome. It's BMs awesome. are the best. Yeah. They are the best. Uh, <laughs> it's one of the questions that you get whenever you go to a doctor, right? Yeah. It's like, it's yeah. Like, almost like a vital sign. It's so true. And when I started to change my eating habits, I noticed that I started going every day too, but before it wasn't like that. So it is such a big part of it. As we kind of traverse through the day of a genius life, you might also step into a sauna. I thought that this was remarkable, that the risk of dementia of all types could be reduced by up to 66% if mm. you use a sauna between four to seven times a yeah. week, which apparently the the Finnish do because yeah. they all have saunas. Apparently, have saunas. it's so funny. It's the sauna capital of the world. Yeah. yeah. So that's a really interesting hack. Why do you think that that is the case? So many reasons. Well, for one, because I mean, we just talked about environmental toxins. Saunas, you, you sweat. You sweat out environmental toxins through your skin. Not all of them, but I mean, it is, your skin is a is a route of of exit. It's a it's an ex, exit point for certain heavy metals for compounds like, you know, BPA and, and um, phthalates and things like that. Flame retardants, we know we excrete through the skin. Um, exercise also acts like an aerobic exercise mimetic, meaning it you, you're, just by sitting in a sauna, it's the equivalent of getting like a light aerobic workout. You can literally put your fingers on the radial artery in your wrist and feel your pulse. And you'll notice that you're just sitting there, but your pulse is start, starts to elevate. So you get kind of like a workout sitting in a sauna. Saunas also um, have been shown to boost uh, expression of proteins called heat shock proteins that help to protect um, the proteins in your body from becoming misfolded. Mm -hmm. um, so they act like sort of uh, buttresses on a castle wall that help proteins like amyloid um, from misfolding and forming the aggregate plaques that we associate with Alzheimer's disease. Just so great. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. so many ways. Great for your cardiovascular system. So heart health is brain health. Right. You know, when you... Uh, get a, if you like sprain your ankle and you put a hot compress on that, on that wound, it draws blood to the surface. It creates nitric oxide in your blood vessels, which, which reduces your blood pressure, um, locally and ba basically sitting in a sauna does the same thing. It's like putting a hot compress all over the entirety of your body. And so it reduces blood pressure. People who sit in saunas have dramatically reduced risks for hypertension and for stroke. Mm -hmm. Um, which is amazing because hypertension puts you at increased risk for dementia, vascular dementia. And so, yeah, sitting in a sauna is amazing. It's it's really is a it's one of the most important I think health modalities that we have. Yeah, and it's so cool because uh, it's a relaxing activity. So knowing that you can give yourself that permission to relax, it's actually going to be really good for you. And as we start to wind down towards the evening of your genius life day, um, you have another dinner, you have another meal with nutrient dense foods, and then you start to wind down a bit. You put on your blue uh, color blocking glasses. And, and I love that towards the end of the book, you actually talk about just general life tips of like what a genius life really consists of. And it's not necessarily these specific, okay, these foods, the sauna, but it's just tips for life that were inspired by what your mother taught you. Yeah. I love that part oh, so much. Man. Can you share a couple of your favorites? I mean, I thought one of my favorites was the kindness one, that oh, that is yeah. just a big one. But what are some other ones that you really like? I love that you asked me about that. This is the first time I've been asked about that section in the book. Yeah, I, you know, my mom, over the course of writing The Genius Life, my mom passed away. She, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And it was 
freaking awful. Um, I know you can relate to this. It was, I mean, it was barbaric and brutal and all of my work has been motivated by my mom. And so mm-hmm. even though I know the genius life is a, it's a product and I'm promoting it and I want people to buy it and support my work at the end of the day, for me personally, because my work has been solely motivated by my mom, I wanted to use it as an opportunity to pass on my mom's legacy. And at the end of the day, what my mom was, was somebody who really, um, had, values that I think um, she instilled in me and I hope in that section of the book to instill in my readers. So kindness is one of them. I mean, my mom, she was the kindest person that that I knew and she would always encourage me to befriend people who were isolated, who were shy, who were lonely. Uh, animal, she was a big animal rights um, activist without being over the top, you know, and, and, and aggressive about it. She was just, she always tried to be a voice for animals and, and, uh, and voiceless people, you know, people who were disenfranchised. And um, she gained nothing from that. She just really felt that uh, in life, you've got to sort of pay it, pay it forward. And um, whether it was giving to charity or helping the homeless or, helping her friends uh, connect with with homeless animals um, that they could adopt um, or or speaking out against um, animal testing and cosmetics, which, you know, like you don't need to, there's enough healthy cosmetics out there that don't need to be, you know, squirted in the eyes of rabbits before, you know, being deemed safe. Um, so she just, she just, this was something that she walked the walk with and I try to instill these values in the, in, in my readers. So, yeah, be kind, be generous. Mm-hmm. Um, don't let people, you know, be kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. Don't lie. You know, be be honest, be truthful. Being yeah. a, being called a liar in my house growing up was was probably the biggest insult. The worst thing the that you could be called. The worst thing that you could be called. Yeah. So it's something that that I embody. You know, I'm always very honest with my with my readers and my followers and and yeah, and so like that that's a little section in the back where I just try to kind of like integrate all of these things that I feel like were really embodied my mom's spirit and and yeah, to, to create this legacy for her. It's it's beautiful. And and your teaching is creating a legacy too. If your mom was here today, what would you say to her? Man, what would I say? I just I you know, I miss her so much. Mm. Um I was in New York recently. I just got back two days ago and, uh, it was, a it was the first time that I'd been back to New York by myself. And yeah, I mean, just being, being in the city, cause my mom lived her whole life there, yeah. uh, really reminded me of her. And I was on this, this, this book tour. And so I was getting all the, you know, all these like accolades, people, you know, talking about my book. And then I just thought how much I wish that I could share this moment with her, you know, the second book coming out, the first book came out and she was so proud of me and she was so proud of the book and she got to, (laughs) she got to see it. And obviously she doesn't get to see this unfortunately, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that would, I would, I would love to get to show her and to, you know, and to let her know that life is good. You know, I think that that's what she really mostly would have wanted to know that, that I'm happy that I'm healthy, that I'm taking care of my brothers and, Mm -hmm. Um, I've got, you know, two younger brothers. And so, yeah. And the the relationship, I think oftentimes of the firstborn with their parents, it's a different kind of relationship. I'm, I'm firstborn as well. And I think you, you have a certain type of closeness and a shared responsibility Hmm. with them sometimes. And so, um, I just thought that was so lovely because all of your work that has helped so many people is ultimately inspired by your mother. And so I love that you sort of bring the book to a closure in many ways with the lessons you learned from your mother and now you're 
passing a lot of that learning on. And what I just really adored about your program is that it's about a comprehensive lifestyle. And you even get into sleeping tips, you know, good sleep hygiene, which I think is so yeah. important. So that's really the last part of a, of a day in the genius life. This episode was packed with information and how to use that information to take charge of your health. And here's the takeaway. Anyone can become a citizen scientist and here are some top tips to get started. First, knowledge is power. Be like Max and never stop learning. Arm yourself with as much knowledge as you can so that you can be empowered for real change. Here's one way to start. Research a topic of interest by going to credible sources. Use scholar.google.com instead of regular Google. Second tip. Talk to scientists and doctors. Once you've done your own research, you can engage your doctor so much more and help them to develop a specific action plan for you. So before your next doctor's appointment, do some research, make a list of specific questions and help them help you. Third, do a case study on yourself, experiment and find out what works for you, but don't overwhelm yourself. Try just one of the tips Max talked about at a time. Look at the results, find out what works for you and stick with it and toss what isn't. Fourth, volunteer for a study. Amazing research is happening all around us, so become a part of building a strong knowledge base. Volunteer for an online survey study or one at your neighborhood university or hospital. Or you can take part in one of the many citizen science projects through NASA. All that's needed is your interest in a cell phone or laptop. And finally, don't wait until it's too late. Prevention is the best medicine. Don't wait until a health crisis happens before you start taking care of yourself. And Max, I would love for you to reflect on this tip because we don't sometimes think ahead. We don't. I wish I knew 20 years ago what I know now and so that I could retroactively or, or proactively rather help my mom. Um, yeah. But we don't know often, you know, oftentimes until it's too late. And so... You really, there's a, a John F. Kennedy quote that I cite in the book and, you know, I'm John F. Kennedy, his life predates me, but uh, it was a great, it's a great quote and it's the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining, not when it's raining and pouring and you're, you know, struggling and clamoring to get to the roof to fix it. Um, when the sun is shining, which is right now, if you're listening to this podcast, you know, take, read the genius life, take these steps, integrate them into your life and recognize that. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Because again, these conditions develop over years, if not decades, and the tools that medicine has to treat them effectively are very limited. I mean, medicine is amazing. Like if I had a blockbuster drug to give my mom that would help undo her disease, I would in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of these medications, you know, what they work on are single chemicals or singular biological pathways. The beauty of, of optimizing your sleep, of getting to the gym more frequently, of eating a healthier diet is that they strengthen the entirety of the system. They're going to strengthen your heart. They're going to strengthen your brain. They're going to strengthen your joints. They're going to make you digest your food better and go to the bathroom every day and feel better and have greater clarity of thought and have more energy and focus and you're going to be happier. I mean, these are, these are all the side effects in air quotes of cleaning up your diet, of integrating these lifestyle techniques. Um, and there are no negative side effects, right? You know, there is no weaning off period. Yeah. Know? There's no downside. You're going to look better naked. You're going to feel more confident. Right. So, you know, I did the best I could to, to bring all of these topics, you know, under 
one roof in the genius life. And I stand on the shoulders of giants. See, there, you could read a whole book on sleep. You can read a whole mm-hmm. book on circadian biology, right? But right. Is, is everybody going to do that? Instead, what I try to do is take the most actionable research, um, the most relevant research, and and really make these tactics achievable for most people and not do it in a way that was going to bore you to tears and make it seem overwhelming or um, out of reach. It was a very engaging book. I liked the little side boxes. I liked the charts. I mean, it's nice to break up the reading, right? And and so definitely don't be afraid of doing more research for everybody who's listening. You know, take charge of your future health. So if you know that there might be a risk factor in your family, do something about that today. Read one article, Mm. read one chapter of The Genius Life. But I think it's really just about being empowered that you can take one small action every day, accumulate that knowledge, and then being able to use it in a way that is practical for you, that works for your life to improve everything. And again, Max, amazing work. Um, everybody should also listen to your podcast, which is so good. The Genius Life podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Um, but where else can people find you if they want to learn more about you? Yeah. I mean, the Genius Life podcast, the Genius Life book, and I'm very active on Instagram at Max Lugavir, L-U-G-A-V-E-R-E. And uh, also frequently appearing on the Doctor's TV show, which I'm super, super excited about. Yes, we really love you here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Supercharged Life. If you like the show and want to learn more, follow me at Dr. Judy Ho. And remember to subscribe, download, and tell your friends. And take a moment to leave a review. It'll mean so much to me. I'm Dr. Judy. And remember, anytime is a great time to supercharge your life. 